Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF Public Media's show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sussingham, host of Florida Matters. This week on Florida Matters, it's our monthly news roundtable, and we're talking about the upcoming election. Coming up, a conversation with political analyst and political writer for the Tampa Bay Times, William March. Support for Florida Matters More comes from the National Foundation for Transplants. Right now, hundreds of Tampa residents need an organ transplant they cannot afford. Join National Foundation for Transplants, an organization providing financial relief to transplant patients for more than 35 years. Visit transplants.org to learn more. I'm here in the studio with William March, who writes about politics for the Tampa Bay Times. Hey, William. Hi, Robin. Thanks for being here. William, you've been doing this for a long time, Uh, political reporting, political analysis. What do you think is different in the zeitgeist this time around? Because it certainly feels different. Well, it it sure is. And, you know, maybe the best example is the governor's race. The attorney general's race, also a good example. But but normally um, in Florida politics, you would expect the two nominees would be the two moderates, the two most moderate of out of their primary fields. And that would have been Adam Putnam on the Republican side and probably Gwen Graham on the Democratic side. And, and Putnam, of course, was, was aiming at the Republican nomination for governor and thought by the Republican Party to be their unquestioned nominee for at least a decade before this year. And then suddenly along comes... It was almost a given. Oh, yeah. It was just assumed. Uh, and along comes this highly unusual, volatile political year. Along comes Donald Trump. And suddenly Ron DeSantis, virtually unknown by comparison, not favored by that many Republican leaders in the state, suddenly he crushes Putnam in the primary race. No, well, he was a U.S. congressman. So well, he was so a congressman. And, and Only known in his district, really. Known, known mainly only in his district. Putnam had held statewide office as agriculture commissioner and had been in political news for decades as himself a congressman and uh, uh, a pretty high-profile state legislator uh, before that. So that's just a shocking And just twist. so well-connected, Adam Putnam. Oh yeah, yeah. The the party leaders, the major donors, were almost unanimously behind him. So suddenly, that expectation on everybody's part, both Democrats and Republicans, is just crushed. And we have DeSantis as the nominee, and it's because of Trump, and it's because of the divided political atmosphere. On the other side, on the Democratic side, you have something very, very similar. You have four candidates or four high-quality candidates running. uh, And of those, the most liberal, the black candidate, not the best-known candidate by far, not the one supported by a majority of party leaders, is the one who captures the imagination of the grassroots and wins the nomination after not leading a single poll in the primary. So it's... um, Let's talk about polls. Do they trust polls? I have people saying to me, I don't believe polls. And I said, well, it's not really a matter of believing them. It's sort of 
are they do you think they're correct or not? I mean, what do you think what's the attitude towards all these polls now? Well, there's a lot of mistrust about them. There's also a lot of misinformation about them. In the case of Andrew Gillum winning the Democratic primary this year, he didn't lead a single poll. And what happened was apparently an unusual surge of black voters that pollsters just couldn't account for. So the answer is that, that polls, it, it depends partly on the poll. They can still be right, but you have to evaluate them. You have to look at them, the quality of the poll itself, and keeping in mind that even the, even the best poll, even a perfect poll under the laws of statistics and probability, one out of 20 will be wrong. And does it matter to voters? Do they say, oh, my guy's down in the polls. I better get out there and vote. I mean, does it motivate people when they see that their candidate of choice is down in the polls? In some cases, it does motivate people. Uh, In some cases, in primaries, for example, people will vote for the candidate that they think is most likely to win in the general election. You know, that's what a lot of a lot of Republicans want the the most likely Republican winner. Democrats want the most likely Democratic winner. Uh, it it sometimes does motivate people to work harder. And some candidates fear polls that show them with long leads because they fear that will undercut the enthusiasm of their supporters. Polling does provide you information, but you cannot live by it or always rely on it. And in some areas, presidential races the higher profile races where there's more polling, you're more likely to be able to look at an average of all polls and get an accurate sense because when you do that, you tend to diminish the effect of errors or imperfections by any one pollster. So yes, polling to me still provides, as a a political writer, polling still provides to me very valuable information at some times and in some races and in some ways. But, for example, um, we talked earlier about the Congressional District 15 race. I'm unclear. There, there are polls that are showing that race as a straight tie. That's a little hard to believe in that Republican leaning a district. That Chris- is Republican Ross Spano versus Kristen Correct. Kristen Carlson, Carlson, the, um, Carlson, the right, Democrat. In a district that takes up a lot of Polk County and, and a lot of eastern Hillsborough. So there are polls coming in showing that race a straight tie. Now, this is a strongly Republican-leaning district, so I'm not, I'm not making a lot of large bets mm-hmm. based on those polls. Uh, on the other hand, polls in the Florida Senate race show a very tight race. I think that's absolutely accurate. I think it's very tight. Polls in the governor's race show a very tight race with Gillum maybe a point or two ahead. That's pretty close to accurate. Um, those polls in those races are within the margin of error. So it's totally believable to think there's just tight races all around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nobody's, nobody's really pulling away. Is this a stressful election? Well, I think it is, yes. I, I mean, I, I keep hearing people say, if so-and-so doesn't win, I'm moving to Australia, or we have to prevent so-and-so from winning because otherwise our country will go down in flames or our state will be ruined. Uh, it is a stressful election. Uh, and again, 
that comes back to the same thing we've been talking about on just about every question you've asked me today, which is divisiveness and polarization in the electorate. How likely is Andrew, if, let's say Andrew Gillum is elected and he wants to do the things that he's been, that are in his campaign, that he wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, that he wants to expand Medicaid, that he wants to um, steeply increase corporate taxes. How likely is he going to be able to do those things if there is still a Republican legislature? He will be able to do parts of some of them, maybe. Um, The governor does have uh, certain very powerful levers that he can pull. Now, there's no question that if Gillum is elected, he'll immediately face sharp, divisive, and continuing conflicts with the legislature over the kind of initiatives you're talking about. I mean, because the ideology there is so completely different. But Republicans cannot afford to completely ignore him for one big reason, and that is the veto. The veto power. He has the veto power. And Republicans currently in the Senate do not have enough votes to sustain or to overturn, override a governor's veto, also true in the House. Uh, They don't have a uh, a two-thirds majority in either House right now. So... And assuming that Democrats gain a few seats, which most people think they will, then Republicans will have a problem dealing with Gillum's veto power, and that'll give him some leverage. Right. Boy, it's going to be interesting Tuesday night. (laughs) I might add, Robin, that Sean Shaw, who's promising an activist liberal attorney general's office, could be in the same situation. As an independent elected official himself, he he doesn't have to follow the dictates of the legislature or the cabinet. The legislature, though, of course, does pay for funding his office. But would they use that funding to, I mean, what could they do about that funding? Just stop paying his salary if they don't like what he's doing? (laughs) That's a very good question. And I don't know for sure what they could do um, if, if it became an issue between them. There would be political posturing and uh, and and all sorts of wild claims uh, on each side, and then some sort of solution that would be negotiated and worked out. Okay, so speaking of Sean Shaw, um, gun control is a big issue for him. And that was a big issue after the Parkland school shooting. Um, but is it still? Is it? Have you heard candidates talking about that? Well, we've had... Um, well, yes, candidates are certainly talking a lot about it. Uh, in our local area, it's one of the big issues that Janet Cruz is throwing against Dana Young. Um, as you mentioned, Sean Shaw is making a big issue out of it. Uh, pretty much most Democratic candidates, I think, are, are taking stances um, on this. The, uh, it has not proven to be as big an issue, I think, as Democrats hoped it would become the March for Our Lives movement that originated among high school kids after the the Parkland, the shootings in Parkland at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, hasn't raised the amount of money or achieved the the profile in the state elections that they that they had aimed to. But it's still very much out there. Mm-hmm. The, okay. And the shootings that we've seen, the shooting in Pittsburgh, uh, the other shootings that we've seen recently are are enough to keep the issue alive, at least in some minds. And education 
I hear a lot about education this time around, and everybody's talking about vocational education all of a sudden. Well, vocational education is is an issue that that a lot of people have been bringing up over over a number of years. It was one of Adam Putnam's biggest issues in the primary. I promised to expand uh, vocational uh, technical trade education in public schools. There's always some tension because educators believe in the value of just general knowledge and a general level of educational sophistication for everyone. Uh, But businesses are eager to see public schools turning out people ready to take their jobs. And and you have, so you have two. Well, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I think a lot of educators also get frustrated by trying to fit everybody um, in the same mold. I mean, some people may not be college preparatory students, and educators don't want to see them um, discouraged or fail. They want to know there's another track for those students, too. And again, I was talking general tendencies, but of course you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of students It who, just seems like a place where there could be common ground, you know? Well, there is, and you don't hear Democrats attacking the idea of vocational education. Uh, you just don't hear them making as big an issue of it as in their Republicans platform. do and their platform. Mm-hmm. And what you hear is Democrats saying, in just in general, more funding for public education is needed overall, and Republicans talking about the need for increased emphasis on vocational education. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's an interesting way that Andrew Gillum wants to fund education is the... I guess the corporate tax is the way that he was right. a billion he's, dollars is I think what he yeah he's wanted proposed to come up with. an increase um, of about a billion dollars um, in corporate tax revenue that's uh, and DeSantis refers to it as a forty percent tax increase well that's that pretty much way overbroadens it it would in fact apply only to a pretty small fraction of Florida businesses because the vast majority of Florida businesses don't pay any corporate income tax. They're exempt because they don't reach the level of profits necessary to pay it. Uh, For the ones that it applied to, uh, I forget the exact figures, but it is accurate that it would be a 40% increase in the rate they pay. Right. That is William March, a political writer and political analyst. He writes for the Tampa Bay Times. Thank you, William. Oh, enjoyed it, Robin. Nice to be here. And thank you for joining us. Listen to Florida Matters on the radio Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7. You can always find it online at WUSFnews.org. I'm Robin Sessingham. Come back next week for another episode of Florida Matters More and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher.